Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faiz Al-Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today, I'll be talking to two journalists about their essays for New Lines on a shared theme, how art and archaeology can be used for political purposes. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Olivia Snage, who wrote an essay entitled Archaeology Turns Political to Benefit a Trio of Middle East Strongmen. Olivia is a Paris-based journalist who's been investigating how three political leaders, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, and Hafez al-Assad in Syria, built their regimes on the back of archaeology, and how they each used their country's respective heritage to unify their nations, to glorify their rule, and to justify the oppression of their enemies. But first, I'm joined by Lydia Wilson, a contributing editor here at New Lines. Lydia is a research associate at the University of Cambridge's Computer Lab, an editor for the Cambridge Literary Review, and the presenter of the BBC series, The Secret History of Writing. She's the author of the essay, In a Sea of Broken Glass, Beirut Museum's Work to Preserve Their Antiquities, which she wrote in August, a year after the Beirut port blast. Lydia, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So we've talked about memory wars and the weaponization of history on this podcast before, but today we're talking about just how far back those battles can go. And the two articles we're talking about really are about how you tell the story of a nation and the role that history in the form of art or archaeology plays in that. So your article was about how Beirutis are uniting to try to rescue the city's antiquities after the Beirut blast. And Snage's essay was about how Middle Eastern dictators use their country's heritage to try to, again, unify their countries and shape national identity. So there's a link between these two, isn't there, in terms of how history is connected to a sense of identity and how the stories we tell about the past are also stories we tell about ourselves today. Absolutely. I think it's a very human impulse, in fact, to look at the past um, to shape our collective identity, whatever that collective identity is, as a family or mm. a community or a nation. Mm. And I think that's always happened in the past, probably more through oral culture and perhaps more of a mixture of mythology and what we might call historical fact. Yeah. Um, and that hasn't ever stopped. And I think as well, what is common throughout human history is that certain people have utilized that to tell particular stories, to shape that past and, 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 the, and the oral nature of that made that very easy. Mm. Um, I think that... Well, that's changed a bit, hasn't it now? I mean, you, we've talked before about the professionalization of history. Yes, absolutely. That changed a lot of things, I should think, um, mm. partly because we also saw the institutionalization of a lot of these disciplines. And with that institutionalization came museums and a very mm. tangible sense of history. I think in previous cultures, it's probably been much more oral based. And therefore, we didn't really have this connection to objects in the same way. There might be objects within families but not so much shared within a society. Um, yeah. And now, you know, we're taken to them as children, we're shown them on television. Uh, there's very much more an object-based uh, approach. And I think that's probably changed our attitude as well to the, the sort of fact-based approach of it. We, if we see it, we kind of think it's real in, in some way that maybe a story isn't. Yeah. 
that's a big shift, I think. I mean, you you touch on, we were talking about writing in your BBC series, you touch on that sort of shift in how it changes really the human experience. And I think there's something very similar with, with objects. I mean, once you have the professionalization of history, as you say, the, the physical, tangible object in front of you, it gets imbued with a meaning that goes beyond words. Yes, that's right. And I think also it's more able to be shared. You know that other people have observed this or, or in the past used this object. And so you, you see yourself in, in a shared horizon of history, um, which I think is important. But I think there's something else going on specifically at this historical moment. And that's a lot of the anxiety coming out of globalization, that a lot of people are fearing that their cultural specificity is being lost and being encroached on by others. And there's a lot of sense of maybe cultural imperialism. And I think more and more people are retreating into smaller identities. I've seen this very personally here in Britain mm. and in a pro-Brexit world. A lot of what drove that Brexit vote were very nationalistic stories, myths, histories um, at the expense of other sorts of identity. And I think partly that comes from an anxiety that we retreat into an identity that seems somewhat safe or solid or or you know nostalgic that that yeah. to link us to our ancestors in some way and that's very important because a lot of the way that that link is done is through these objects through the retelling of narratives about what people see around them in buildings what they have in their museums and so on absolutely yes um and those narratives though they can be hijacked they can be retold in all sorts of different ways not necessarily in bad ways you know I think it's one of the myths that history is unchanging that we have this truth as as, as academics or researchers we can find this one single truth when of course historians full well know that history is, an, is a process and a historian's work is is never done I mean I think we've seen this in the culture wars where the anti-woke brigade accuse his people of so-called rewriting history you know when they're trying to get rid of um oppressive statues or or other sorts of um um heritage yeah uh, um that actually a historian's job is to retell history. That's what we do. Mm. Um, and that will never, ever stop. It's not like we now know things about, say, Julius Caesar or, or, I don't know, Darwin. We don't stop. Everybody's still studying these periods of history. And that's because of a few different reasons. First of all, sometimes we get more evidence from the past. We find a new manuscript or a new object. But also we have new brains coming along with new interpretations and new ideas. And so the, this, this work of interpretation continues and continues to revise how we understand the past. So in some ways, that retelling of the national myth through artifacts is very normal. You'd expect every society to try to do it. But before we get into the detail of that and, and talk a lot about these identities in a shifting world, I want to talk about the specific examples of how these three Middle Eastern politicians uh, use their historical artifacts to try to tell a national story. As you said, it is very normal for historians to try to tell and retell a national story. But what happens when politicians seek to do that for their own ends? Olivia Snage spoke to me from Paris about her essay, and I started by asking her what first made her interested in the uses and abuses of archaeology. 
Well, it was a long process. Um, there's been a lot in the news about uh, restitution and looting of antiquities and so on. And I wanted to do something on Middle Eastern um, artifacts, antiquities. And uh, so I pitched the story to New Lines. But then when I began to sort of uh, research it, I realized it was a huge topic and I had to narrow it down. And so I began talking to a few archaeologists and I was speaking to Morag Kersel, who's a, an archaeologist and anthropologist at DePaul University in Chicago. And we were talking about nationalism and um, dictators. And she said, hmm, you know, it'd be interesting uh, to read something about uh, Gaddafi, for example, or others. So I sort of took the trio um, mm. even though they're different and I started researching it but it was it was kind of long and and um, a long process yeah mm. I mean it's a big subject this sort of use of archaeology for political purposes um, mm. I think you, you talk about these three Libya Syria and Iraq and there are some parallels between them because they're all they were all seeking to shape this national identity in the guise of their own personality their own political personality I think yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, Syria and Iraq were more similar uh, because they, you know, they were, well, the, the Ba'ath parties and um, the leaders had somewhat, I mean, they were <laughs> less uh, unstable, you know, mm. than, than Gaddafi, who, who was um, quite unique in his way of going about uh, uh, his particular form of nationalism. Mm. I mean, they were very, the, the Syrian and the Iraq example were really nation building projects, where Libya, I think it was more a, more a Gaddafi building project. It was really much more in his image and with his own political interests and his own historical interests, as you say in the essay. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, uh, I think that... Um, uh, it, also, it depends on on their intention and you know how they wanted to use archaeology and and how the archaeologists um, collaborated with them. Uh, so um, you know, as uh, the Iraqi uh, the Ba'ath Party at the beginning, um, they they were very sort of intent on uh, uh, Arabness and so on. But um, then when uh, uh, Saddam Hussein came around. He, you know, he sort of refined and, and changed the model a little bit, and uh, it was very important for him, as I said in the article. You know, being um, a Sunni and a Shia majority to sort of emphasize the the unity of uh, Shia and uh, Sunni uh, being together, and that's yeah. why he used uh, Babylon, you know, which was also geographically at the center. Um, yeah. To, 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 I mean, the nation building aspect of it is is really the essence of it. And, and you say in, in your essay that one of the main advantages that a country's ancient heritage can offer, particularly in Syria and, and Iraq, is that that heritage is cross-confessional. And when you have these countries where there's a lot of religious diversity, it's easy to see why these rulers would want to have a, a secular national myth that can unite, that can unify these faiths and sects, particularly when they're sort of rebuilding the nation. Exactly. I mean, in Syria, that's a that's a case in point um, uh, where, uh, for example, uh, this uh, uh, French um, academic Stéphane Walter, he, he wrote a whole book about how Syrian nationalism was built. And, uh, you know, he talks about how the Umayyad period was particularly useful to Assad because of 
because it was multi-ethnic. And mm. so Assad needed to bring together all these ethnicities and religions under a sort of Arab cover, you know, yeah. with a pinch of nationalist pride, a bit of Islam, so as not to put yeah, off the yeah. majority yeah, and, yeah. you know, keep the Christian stuff because they were allied with the Alawites. So mm. um, it wasn't simple. And uh, this is how they, they used uh, the archaeology. I mean, that's why, from one perspective, you look at it and you say, well, there's a certain logic to it. It's not inherently a bad idea to try to use the archaeology to try to build a national myth. The difficulty is that these leaders were using it to build a, a story um, from their own political perspective. So they had to sideline a lot of it. And you give exactly the example of Saddam Hussein trying to downplay the Sunni Shia division at the time and focus on a shared Mesopotamian-inspired culture. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, he was the one who was exacerbating the Sunni-Shia divide. Exactly. The archaeologist Haider al-Mamori said uh, that um, there's a, a place in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Iraq, the ancient site of, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but uh, Dur Kurigalzu, uh, and it was built by kings in the Kassite dynasty in the second half of the second millennium B.C., and it was a huge seat of power in Mesopotamia, but the kings probably came from the Zagros Mountains in what is today Iran. So mm -hmm. his archaeologists worked on the site and the period was acknowledged, but he definitely wouldn't have wanted people to know that the, the dynasty originally came from Iran. Yeah. Uh, that was yeah, um, yeah. Mm. and that's the interesting bit about what gets remembered you mm -hmm. have all these these three countries that you talk about libya syria and iraq they're all countries with thousands of years of history i mean that example from the second millennium bc mm. there's such a long unbroken history in these countries but the history that these political figures in the 20th century are interested in seems to be from very specific periods of time and they they sideline other periods they neglect them they intentionally forget them so I guess the question for you is, what is it that makes some periods more usable politically than others? Um, yes, well, I already mentioned in the case of uh, Syria, the Umayyad, um, the Umayyad culture, which was very useful to them. Uh, again, in, in Syria, uh, Jewish antiquity and identity was downplayed and groups of, for example, Ismaili culture were sidelined. And also the more recent Ottoman buildings to, to step away from the idea that it had been dominated, you know, Syria by um, uh, the Ottoman Empire. And uh, in the case of uh, Saddam, uh, of, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, of Saddam, uh, I'm not sure if he purposefully damaged um, layers of culture or if it was simply, you know, a bad job uh, with archaeologists who were too afraid to oppose what he wanted. I mean, uh, there are plenty of examples of, of him sort of uh, removing layers of civilization. But I'm, again, not an archaeologist and not an expert. So I, I wouldn't know if he did this purposefully or, or, or if it was just, you know, shoddy work. I mean, the, again, the, the, the uh, archaeologist in, um, in Iraq told me that he was recently excavating at the Temple of Enlil and he found an, an inscription in the Holy Room that read, uh, this temple was rebuilt in 1989 by order of Saddam. So, so Saddam mm. couldn't resist putting yeah. his mark on everything, yeah. you know? Yeah. It was, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the things that so that comes across in the essay that actually, for example, Saddam Hussein put a lot of money into archaeology and into restoration projects. And that's, I mean, when you compare it to the, the current situation, that's a positive thing. But then the reasons for doing it are politically motivated. Mm, yes, absolutely. Um, so some of these, these uh, projects get restored, which they wouldn't have done otherwise. But as they are restored, as you say with that example, there's a, a little bit of Saddam Hussein put in there to stay for posterity. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, a lot of a lot of Saddam Hussein put in there. <laughs> yeah. And then I guess also, how do they, when they are trying to use these artifacts, I mean, how do they draw the distinction between what the historians are telling them and what they would like that history to say? So the example you gave in the essay is about uh, Libya and how Gaddafi would sideline the Greek and Roman exhibits because he linked them to the Greek colonization, the Byzantine colonization, the Italian colonization like that. Mm. Um, well, I mean, in the case of Gaddafi, you know, I think the, the best line was, was the, the uh, Libyan archaeologist who said it was just a reflection of his unstable character. I mean, there was no real benefit for Gaddafi to, to, uh, to uh, sort of sidelining uh, Libya's heritage, uh, except that he, he wanted to develop the socialist republic and archaeology wasn't part of his plan. And uh, he didn't develop tourism because he didn't have to. He had oil. Mm. Um, and as you said, he was obsessed with colonialism and Italian oppression. And he thought that the amazing Greek and Roman archaeology heralded Italian colonization in the 20th century, even if it was founded in the 7th century BC. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there were so many stories that, that uh, Mohammed Ali Fakrun, this is the, the Libyan archaeologist, told me. You know, for example, there was a, a bronze statue of the emperor Septimius Severus of uh, Leptis Magna that was made during the Italian occupation, and it was in the central square of Tripoli. But um, Gaddafi didn't like it. So he said, you know, take it away. <laughs> so they put yeah. it in storage. And then he said to them, well, you know, if, if, if Septimius Severus is from Leptis Magna, then he should go to Leptis Magna. And so they had to send the statue there. But it was a modern statue, you know. So, mm. I mean, it, this, it, was, it was one of the more amusing anecdotes. Of <laughs> I, I wondered, actually, it made me think about the very notion of authenticity. I mean, how you how you tell the story, the stories really of, of these countries, these complicated countries in a way that remains authentic to the facts. Mm. I mean, this is, this is, this is the problem when you, when you think about it, I mean, it must've been so difficult for, for Syria, for example, where, you know, they had Akkadians, Assyrians, Nabataeans, yeah. Palmyrians, Canaanites, Hittites, you know, yeah. everyone, you name it. And so, I mean, it, it, a parallel to me, it would seem a little bit like, uh, I don't know if you remember those films you saw when um, DNA tests started becoming available and you'd have a person saying they were sure they were 100% British or whatever. And then they'd get the test back and they'd discover they were also, you know, Jewish, black or, or some other ethnicity. Right, sure, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's, it's, a, it's a, an impossible exercise. And Is it an impossible exercise at all? Because, I mean, there is a, there is a, a logic to seeking to integrate the memory of a people into the current modern story. Mm, mm. But it, 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 I wondered if you could say why it's so difficult to do it. I guess the reason is you must have some overarching political structure. Otherwise, 
Otherwise, you just have all these disparate parts and you can't pull them together. Yes, it's true. I mean, I live in France and Fran France is one of the, the few countries that have been able to really pull together um, and have a, a real sort of unity. Because if you look at um, uh, Germany or, or, or Italy uh, or Britain, for example, they're, they're still, you know, there's a unity, but they're, they're very regional still. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's, you know, with a sort of democratic discourse, it's possible to have unity, but not always um, uh, possible to sort of um, uh, have a, a situation like we do in France. It's not easy to, to you, you have to have a unifying political structure, but inevitably something gets left out of it. There's no mm. possible way to thread all of the different parts. I mean, an old country like France, it's not possible to thread all of the different history into one narrative. You inevitably have to leave some parts out. Yes, 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 mm. I agree. And I mean, you would have um, people from uh, Brittany, you know, uh, up in arms. The Corsicans are still, you know... Um, they 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 like they don't like to be identified as French, but nonetheless, you know, the, the a, a huge amount of pressure was put on them. Um, mm. Yeah, and of course, you still see this. I mean, you see it in in the UK with Scotland. You see it in uh, in Spain with Catalan and so on. So these are still very real problems. They're not absolutely problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. No, finish, on. please. Uh, no, I was just going to say that um, I don't think what these Arab leaders did really was was is very different from what's been done all over the world. I mean, um, for example, you know, during under Hitler, you had a. Uh, you had him sending German archaeologists across Eastern Europe looking for Germanic sites that you know would be classified as Aryan, and then that would justify the expansion of the the, the Reich across what he would call then ancient Germany. Um, yeah, and, and even, I mean, even Aryan was itself a creation. Exactly, exactly. And uh, there, there's a, an excellent book that I used uh, for research called uh, Archaeology Under Fire. And um, there's a chapter on former Yugoslavia and, you know, the tensions that there were between the various ethnicities that often resulted in destruction. Uh, you have Cyprus with the Greeks and the Turks. I mean, you can look anywhere and find examples uh, yeah. of this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we we have a, a, a forthcoming uh, essay by uh, Riada Asimovic Akyol about very much about this, about the uses of music in the Balkans, where people claim different parts of their heritage and say, well, this is ours, when actually it's in some way shared between all the different Absolutely. communities. Yeah, I guess, no, I mean, that's fascinating. In your research, then, uh, how do you feel that these countries were successful about the nation building? Do you think that they managed it? Do you think they succeeded in it? Um, uh, from what I understand, from speaking to the Syrian archaeologist Ali Otman, in the case of Hafez al-Assad, he, he used his sites as a political tool with foreign countries. In other words, he would keep the sites open to foreign archaeologists if their country would do X for Syria. And this worked to a certain extent because the sites in Syria are so rich. And unlike Saddam, uh, Assad was far less flamboyant and didn't integrate his image into the sites. So they were well-preserved and well-excavated. Uh, whereas in Saddam's case, you know, you did have this dictator who was inserting himself into the archaeological sites and doing damage to them in the process. But ultimately, I think in both cases... Um, 
people in Iraq and Syria had the notion that they were from countries with an incredible heritage and that culture was important. So that was certainly emphasized, although the nationalistic side to it was more dangerous. Um, in the case of Libya, it was very different because although Gaddafi had studied history, he kind of wiped the slate clean and, and children weren't taught history. Um, they were just taught his version of history. So, so he kept people stuck in a time warp. And um, the, the redeeming factor, as a British archaeologist told me, was that his archaeological sites were preserved in benign neglect because at least he didn't destroy any of them. But people weren't educated about their heritage or taught to preserve it. Um, and the Directorate of Antiquities tried to do it a little bit on the sly, but there's, there's a lot of work to be done now in terms of education. So uh, Libya was a case, um, you know, apart. Yeah. When you remove the education of those antiquities, what you're really doing, as, as your, uh, the person you quote in your essay, the Iraqi historian Zainab Bahrani, she mm -hmm. said, you know, it's a way of wiping out the memory of a people, because if you don't have that architecture, the people's sense of self can't be tied to anything. And in the yes. end, it's wiped. Yes, exactly. And you have this delicate balance between, you know, learning about your heritage and, and then falling into nationalism. So it's the same thing we were saying before. I mean, the, the borders are not fixed, and yet you have to have some kind of idea of, of country and, and past. Olivia, you touched on a lot of the themes that Olivia mentioned in your essay about preserving Lebanon's antiquities after the blast. For those who haven't read the article, can you give a brief overview of the rescue effort? Yes, of course. I mean, the blast in the port last August was is now widely seen as one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history. I mean, it was huge. It was heard 300 kilometers away in Cyprus. And part of that was that it shattered every single window within a approximately 10 kilometer radius, though there were no windows left in Beirut. And so that was marked in two very different ways. For a start, everybody comments that that was the sound of the days after the blast was the tinkling of broken glass as it was being swept up, um, whether that was in homes, on the streets, um, it just everywhere was was covered in glass. And the second major effect of that is that there was no glass left. Lebanon has no glass producing factories, so everything had to be imported. Uh, there just wasn't enough glass to fix that, that, that much destruction. Um, and of course, in closer to the blast was 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 very much more damage. A lot of structural damage. Buildings were were knocked down. Uh, doors, everything. So mm. much destruction. And what one of the marked things that happened was that volunteers flocked to help. People came onto the streets to help each other fix what was broken. Um, and one thing I was very interested in in those very first few days was that people were desperate to try and save Beirut's heritage. And there are a number of different reasons for that. I mean, people are very, people love Beirut um, and, and especially Beirutis. I think lots of people love the city that they come from. So there was that, that, that sense of trying to save the city mm. uh, that had seen so much destruction in its recent past already, because largely because of the civil war. And, and also there's a real sense that that's what 
Lebanese people share. They share their history, no matter the fractures in the in the society from uh, the civil war or before or since. Mm. There is one thing that really does unite them, and that's their long, very long um, history. You know, it's the first place humans went after they left Africa was into that fertile crescent. And so mm. the human record, the archaeological record is really very long indeed. Well, this is something that the curator Nadine Panayot said to you in the article, that it's the heritage, the reason they were so keen to preserve it is that it, it's a common ground for this common Lebanese identity. She said, how can you put 18 confessions into a single identity? Meaning, how can you put 18 faiths into one Lebanese identity? This is a quote. She can't, that can't happen through religion, but it can through heritage. And that's something that we truly have in common. And that's one of the reasons that you had, you were talking about how so many people came out to give up their time in the midst of so much destruction. No doubt they had their own issues, but they came out to try to save the heritage of the country. And they did so because they felt that if they didn't, in some way, the country itself would be diminished. Absolutely. That, that, that's exactly right. The volunteers spanned society. They spanned all the sects. They, they, they were different ages. They came from different communities. They came from different educational backgrounds, but they were unified in this identity. Um, and this desire to really preserve that deep past. Um, and of course, yes, Nadine uh, was, is the director at the AUB Archaeological Museum. And that suffered huge damage because it was so close but also because so many of her artifacts were made out of glass so it wasn't just the windows of her museum that were broken it was the display cases and then it was artifacts inside going back to the roman period mm. and so yeah this this i mean all of them reported all of the directors curators um archivists that i spoke to reported how different this 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 huge army of volunteers made to them not just because there was so much work to be done cleaning and clearing and and, and piecing together but because it was such a moral support they felt no this is important what we do is important I mean that's something I think that's a place where we can delineate a difference between what Olivia was writing about because the the experience in with Saddam in Iraq and in Libya and in Syria was really a top-down model of heritage and that's not the case in Lebanon. There, it's not one person trying to use antiquities to bolster their own position. There, it's Lebanese citizens trying to trying to rescue their own history. I wonder if you think the Lebanese would have shown the same enthusiasm for their to resuscitate their heritage if it had been more top down. If those objects were associated with a particular government narrative, would they would they have expended the same effort to try to save them? Oh, well, that is very interesting. Yes, it is a marked difference. This was a very much bottom-up um, response to the tragedy. And in fact, um, what was remarkable about the government in this situation is that they were totally absent. They didn't help at all. Uh, they were not cleaning up the glass or, or rescuing the museums. Um, I'm not sure if the individuals would have felt differently had they been involved. I think there was widespread anger that they were not. Um, but I think it is something very very specific to Lebanon, that there is no shared telling of recent history whatsoever. The school books 
um, stop at 1975 when the Civil War started. There is no unified narrative of the Civil War in any museum or or book. Nobody's ever done any national telling of that story. It has been done by sect. You hear about it from your from your family you, you don't hear about it from any sort of central source mm. um and so yes it is it's kind of it's kind of the opposite situation to the three that olivia was talking about but but shows the same need for a for a shared identity i suppose yeah i mean that's something i thought that came across in my conversation with olivia that it, to some degree you do need to do this retelling of the national story for the particular political moment but it's how you do it. I mean, as you say, in Lebanon, they've had a very unique history. And because of the, the, the horrors of the Civil War, the history stops. As you say, it stops in the mid-70s. And if you want to understand what happened, there isn't a national narrative. Heritage, to some degree, provides a refuge for that because you can reach back far into history. You don't need to talk about the 20th century to talk about being Lebanese. You can talk about all the centuries that preceded it. I wonder if you feel, though, that at a certain point you will need in that country, you will need to tell the heritage story up to the 20th century and into the 21st. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think it's very necessary for uh, for an identity to interpret the present as well as the past. And of course, we're preserving it for future historians as well, um, because this this work of interpretation doesn't stop so so in a way there's past present and future in all of these efforts and i think a national narrative of the 20th century is something that a lot of lebanese people have been fighting for um mm. in in a number of different ways but without that political will it's very difficult to to have something truly national and i think uh, an, another of the problems is not just how you tell these stories, but who you involve. In yeah. a lot of post-conflict zones, we've seen um, citizen engagement with telling this story. We've had oral histories and retellings through art, through theatre, through through journalism. And they ha- people have been brought together uh, to tell conflicting stories. Well, this isn't how I remember it. And that is that's very noticeably absent in Lebanon. I mean, you already have that process of seeking to retell history, for example, in Iraq, in the post-Saddam era, you have the minority, sorry, the majority, as it were, the Shia, who were treated as a minority, now become the majority, and now they start to talk about the history of the 20th century, but they talk about it from their own perspective, in exactly the same way as you say, the various sects in Lebanon seek to do seek to retell their own national story through their own experiences. But the difficulty comes with seeking a common way of telling that story. And I wonder, I think this came through with the Olivia interview, I wonder if there is such a way. I mean, doesn't it need a political, overarching political theory? Otherwise, how can you take all of these disparate parts of history and put them together, string them along like a, like a necklace, beads on a necklace. How can you possibly tell one particular story? Well, history, I think historians have acknowledged that isn't what we can do ever. We can't come up with a coherent, linear, neat 
narrative. There are too many conflicting sources uh, from the past. And even from the present, you ask three people what happened in a bar brawl, they're not going to come up with the same story. This is what humans are like. We are imperfect um, in how we and how we reconstruct events. And so something as complex and emotional and laden as a civil war is going to be the same. So it's not as if anybody think, I don't think anyone would think you could come up with a nice, neat textbook saying this is what happened, ABC. But you need to put the competing accounts all together and acknowledge there isn't one truth and acknowledge that there is a huge emotional content to all of this. And that would go some way towards building a common consensus. Can I take it from that then that you don't believe the existence of art or artifacts or archaeology is sufficient for a national story? That you do believe there has to be an element of politics, of selection of what the stories mean? It's not so much about selection. It's about acknowledging a plurality, I think is how I'd put it, and acknowledging the role of interpretation. And so whoever you get to write an account, a narrative, you acknowledge that that is one particular brain doing that work and other people would have put it together slightly differently. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. That's just acknowledging the limits of of history and, and saying what we do is we do it many times and we use many different people and we use different lenses to look at the past and we put them all together and that that it, it's like it's like a mythology you know there's no one way of telling the greek myths people have been retelling them for millennia um but they always contain the same sorts of kernel and we read them for different reasons and we acknowledge the power of different forms i wonder though if you are talking about this reinterpretation of history in a in a gentle way when actually the reinterpretation of history can be very violent i mean you start started talking at the beginning about the role of what is sometimes called the woke movement and black lives matter and the retelling of for example britain and america's um history that is incredibly divisive i mean it's not violent it hasn't turned violent yet but it is an incredibly divisive thing so when you are seeking to reinterpret these these hist- what people have thought of up until that point as historical facts, you really are seeking an argument within communities. Sometimes those arguments can turn violent. Oh, absolutely. It's a very dangerous, it's very ideologically laden. And when it's bound up with identity, there's emotions involved and emotions drive all sorts of behaviour. And of course, um, with a lot of national identities, certainly in Britain and other Western countries, there's a large amount of of white supremacism going on. Um, As I understand it, it seems to be growing or maybe it was already there and they've been emboldened by leaders such as Trump. But um, many ways of interpreting the past come with massive amounts of ideology. And then, yeah, it leads very directly into, for example, the political assassinations we've been seeing in this country, Um, um, anti-Semitic or Islamophobic or racist attacks. Um, Yeah, I, I, I absolutely don't deny the the potential for violence in interpreting the past if we say then that the process of reinterpreting the past is obviously going to be difficult but you need to hold on to these archaeological and art artifacts in order to allow the current generation future generations to do so 
But then I guess the question is, what do you need that enables that discussion, that wider conversation to be had in a in a spirit of understanding? What are the things that we can that you as a historian can say are necessary to allow the story of Iraq, the story of Syria, the story of Libya and the story of Lebanon and lots of other places to be told in a way that doesn't exclude com communities? That is um, a very fundamental and challenging question for all historians and archaeologists, partly because we know what we do involves destruction. Every time you dig into the ground in an archaeological dig, you destroy some of the evidence. It's in the name of preserving and understanding more, uh, but you just have to hope that you are choosing the right thing to dig through and the right thing to put in a museum. Similarly, museums, they do not have infinite space. Curation is an eternal process of selection, of selecting what to preserve and what to display to the public. And that involves a certain amount of discarding. And so what we do, quite apart from the destruction that happens from well, explosions in the Beirut port or, or, or war or conflict or, or ideological dictators coming along and destroying things. Quite apart from all of those things, we know that we are destroying the historical record as we go. What to do for the future then is just do the best we can and document as we go. And this is why there are seeds of hope to be found in such tragedies like the Beirut blast, that the curators and directors who are working so hard to preserve what they can, they are learning lessons as they go, not just in preservation, but also taking advantage of what's happened to their objects to do further research. As Nadine Panoyet said to me, director at the AUB Archaeology Museum, she said, there's no way we would have smashed a Roman vessel to do some, to, to do some chemical analysis on it, but we could do that with the fragments we had. And so she's actually running a workshop to explore what has been learned from the Beirut explosion. And I think with one eye on the future, uh, these sorts of events actually can be used. And so there is hopefully always something to be gained for the, for, for the future. Lydia Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you. Lydia's essay is on our website. It's called in a sea of broken glass, Beirut museums work to preserve their antiquities. And Olivia's essay can be found at Archaeology Turns Political to Benefit a Trio of Middle East Strongmen. Lydia is on Twitter at LSM Wilson, and Olivia is at Olivia Snage. And of course, you'll find more essays, podcasts, and our new Middle East Digest newsletter called Turjaman on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.